run through the numbers. A negative number. The lowest number ever. A catastrophically no, low number. A very, very small number. A small number. Actually, the number is getting up. That number is raising, rising. A large number. It's a big number. Big, big number. A very big number. Bigger number than that. Big, big league number. A huge number. A very significant number. A very, very high number. Some fairly vast number. A staggering number. A record number. The number is through the roof. The numbers are astronomical. Ever-growing numbers. Numbers that you've never seen before. Numbers that nobody has ever seen. Numbers that you wouldn't even think are believable. Unbelievable numbers. A massive number. The biggest number ever. It's a ridiculous number. And when you add it all together, a lot of good things are going to happen. Thank you. Here's one very simplistic way to look at economics. The economy is essentially a bunch of numbers, and it's the job of a responsible government to get the numbers up as high as possible. It's a line we're stealing from comedian and presenter of the Trash Future podcast, Riley Quinn, but you could be forgiven for thinking it's a quote from Philip Hammond or Donald Trump. And the White House is apparently saying get ready for some out-of-this-world figures. The recent numbers are poor, but the Chancellor put on his bravest face. If you've been listening to the Weekly Economics podcast for a while, you'll know that we think there's much more to economics than GDP. But it still dominates the way politicians and much of the press talk about the economy. Now, though, there are a bunch of new proposals for measuring what counts. So what should replace GDP? And how would it change society? That's our big question today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Here to chat all about how to make the numbers go higher is returning friend of the pod, well-being expert and NEF fellow, Annie Quick. Hello. <laughs> Short, sweet. Lovely to have you back, Annie. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Also joining us is Richard Partington, economics correspondent at The Guardian. Hello, Richard. Hello. Uh, we're going to dive straight in, if, if you're both happy with that. Uh, lots of our listeners will have heard us talk before about the problems with GDP and kind of the limitations of it and stuff. But just to recap briefly, what are some of the surprising things that are or aren't counted as part of our gross domestic product? So, Annie, we're going to start with you. And then, Richard, I'm going to throw it over. So, surprising things that are included. So, if we have an increase in the illegal drugs trade that increases our GDP. Mm-hmm. If we have a massive oil spill and the government has to spend loads of money clearing it up, that increases our GDP. Uh, if people go into loads of debt and then spend that money on stuff that they don't need, that increases GDP. Wow. Richard, what's not in there? There's a whole bunch of things that aren't in there at all. You know, unpaid work in the home is not in there at all. There is the charitable sector. The work that we do volunteering is not included in the GDP estimates. Really? Um, Char- charitable sector is not in there? Charitable sector is only in there in the extent that people are in there, you know, getting paid to work in the economy and they get their, wow. their pay packets every every month. Uh, but there is not the unpaid volunteering element of the charity sector. There was a recent speech by Andy Haldane, the chief uh, economist at the Bank of England, who estimated that, you know, there is um, about £230 billion of unnoticed activity from the from the voluntary sector that really, you know, should be counted in GDP in his mind, but, um, mm. but we completely miss from the size of the economy. I mean, in a nutshell, Annie, what, what, what is that? That thing you both just said, why? What's that about? 
It's interesting, actually. So GDP was developed, it's a relatively recent historical phenomenon. It was actually developed in 1941 in the context of the Second World War. And and the reason was that they were trying to understand how much economic activity was going on in the UK and economy in order to understand how much could be mobilised to the war effort. So it's quite like a dark and specific Very origins. specific. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and no one who was involved in that, um, you know, people famously who came up with the idea were like really adamant that it was not intended as a measure of human welfare and it kind of has become adopted since then mm. um, and that that's is that just here in the UK or everywhere so its origins are in the US and the UK and then it has been adopted as like an international measure of the of, of economies and part of the key role of GDP is that it's internationally comparable as well mm. and so is that is that kind of because after the war people were looking around being like how can we rebuild and it was just a measure that was lying around that was useful or is there more to it than that it was first developed um, just after the Great Depression, back in the, the 1930s, when um, there was an economist in the US called Simon Kuznets who, who helped to formulate the original accounting of GDP. Um, he was asked by the US government to analyse how much of an impact the, the depression from the Wall Street crash of 29 had had on the US. And you know, in doing so, he worked out that output had fallen by a huge degree, and therefore there needed to be a bigger response. And therefore, we had Roosevelt's New Deal that came after... Um, this analysis of the economy had taken place. But since that point, it was, as as Annie says, utilised in the context of war to work out the productive capacity of um, the Allied nations particularly to fight in the the fight against the Nazis in the Second World War. But then following the end of that and into the Cold War, there was this posturing between um, the Western powers and the Soviet Union to work out who was growing fastest and who was increasing Mm. living standards the most. So you had this real battle of ideology between capitalism and communism. And GDP was seen as one of the benchmarks for for assessing who was winning. Mm. And so I guess the the stuff that you were mentioning about what is included and what isn't still follows that political logic, right? So it's like things like unpaid labour, volunteering aren't seen as valuable as, you know, anything that kind of can be quantified as like hard monetary growth. Does that make sense? Exactly. And and I I guess the reason it's important to look back at the history of it is that it like it's not random, it has come from places mm. where it, it was useful. So in the context of the depression, it's really important to understand the broad shifts of the economy in terms of overall economic activity. I'd say there's still, you know, very poor countries today where GDP is useful in terms of literally just having enough economic activity that there's a basic material standard of living. So it, it's, it's understandable where it came from and there's context in which it's interesting as an economic measure. It's just rubbish as an overall indicator of like human welfare in modern economies. Okay, so in terms of where where we are now, that's a bit of the history. In terms of the current context, who benefits from the current approach to GDP and growth, if anyone? Well, there's you know the whole of our economic system is based upon targeting GDP and the particularly the business world, particularly the governments of the world. You know they target their uh, their success based on whether GDP is rising or falling. You know we don't like to be seen as countries which are in recession and that governments that are presiding over periods of recession um, are ones that need to be voted out, essentially, is the one one way of approaching it. In terms of the business world, GDP, there are um, hordes of analysts in uh, city institutions that will look at the way that GDP is developing. And on the back of that, the whole of the, the, the financial realm will, will trade um, bonds, stocks, securities on the basis of where um, the economies that they underlie are performing. So, I mean, that exposes one beneficiary, but there are, there are, there are others as well. 
But I, I mean, that's exactly the right question to ask, right? And which doesn't get asked nearly enough is who is benefiting from the fact that our entire economy is orientated around GDP? And, and one of the real problems with GDP isn't just the technocratic thing about the measure, it's that it, it sets the frame of how we think about the economy, right? Yeah. So it sets a story whereby what we need to worry about is the size of the pie. And as soon as you've created that, then 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 you're easily like distracted from the massive economic injustice of who has how much of the pie, mm. right? So we're in one of the richest countries in the world. There's 14 million people in the UK living in poverty. It just can't be the case that the problem is the size of the pie. And yet by having this quite technocratic, detailed measure that no one is really allowed to question, you completely conveniently avoid all of those sort of structural or like economic justice questions. I mean, Annie makes a really good point there in, you know, the distribution, you know, who gets uh, what is in this pie that we call GDP is completely glossed over by the statistics. It doesn't take into account who has what share of economic output in each year. It doesn't take account of uh, those at the bottom of the distribution who might not be seeing uh, an improvement in their living standards from GDP rising. You know, that's the whole story of the last few years in that we now talk about political polarisation that perhaps led to the Brexit vote. And in, in amongst that, you know, the economy has been growing, you know, reasonably strongly um, over recent years. And at the same time, people don't feel as though their lives have been improving over that period of time. And, uh, you know, GDP has perhaps glossed over that very important point. Mm, so, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of what you're saying about all the different things that it doesn't include and all the things it obfuscates, I know NEF and IPPR and some people have, have done some work around this idea of a dashboard, you know, of measuring different economic indicators. Could you speak to a little bit about what those indicators might be? And Annie, what I think I heard you say was GDP could still be in there potentially, but just as one thing or would we scrap that altogether? I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't include it. Okay. I feel like it's been like useful as a specific economic measure for certain economic questions in the past. But mm. if I was choosing a small set of indicators to use as a dashboard, I definitely wouldn't have GDP in there. Mm. Um, what so would I, be in there? So, I mean, there's been various different proposals. NEF came up with um, five potential ones a little while ago. But what I would say is rather than me sitting here and saying these are the five that need yeah. to be included one of the really important aspects of this whole agenda is the point that what we aim for as an economy and as a society should be a democratic question that people have a right mm. to have a say in. So for me, the process of coming up with those indicators and then continuing to change and adapt and challenge them is a, a big part of the political project of why dethroning GDP is so important. Mm. So the idea is you'd have people come up with what's important to them in terms of what social growth I guess social and economic growth looks like and then you would come up with different indicators for each of those things uh, and then measure the economy as a kind of aggregate of those different things or the economic growth as an aggregate somewhere. yeah there's different ways that you can do it so um personally I wouldn't create an index. There's basically, there's two out ideas out there, one of which is that we can do everything by just looking at subjective well-being so that all these other things we care about, we can capture them all just by asking people a question of like, That's overall, how is your life going nowadays? How satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Um, and that kind of subjective well-being is just one number. So there are some people um, who would argue that that's good enough and we can just replace GDP with this one other number. I'm not one of those people. I think it's Yeah, surely simple. that's so, there's so much that could be in there. Yeah, that's exactly. not to do with. And then there's another one, which is like, let's just measure like 40 things. So when the UK a while ago came up with their well-being dashboard, there was just too many of them. Like they effectively 
like we have indicators already that sit alongside GDP. It was just a massive list of other things. It was very difficult to then know how you trade them off against each other or how you create some sort of momentum or vision for policy. Um, and then and then what you can do is index them all. So do lots of calculations and somehow add them all up. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. And then you just get one number, which is quite opaque. Mm. So for me, what I would do is come up with a, a small set of things that we're able to like hold in our heads um, as a society and as policymakers probably including things like inequality, things like environment, something about, you know, human well-being and health, and that that, that we can kind of coalesce around these being a small set of things that we care about. Mm. Richard, so you've written recently about ending the fixation with GDP and growth. And yes, yeah, so could you talk a bit through the arguments that were in that piece you wrote and also your response to what Annie was saying? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it starts with this idea that GDP is an adequate measure of the way that we we live our lives in the, in the you know, a very you know, dynamic and modern world where there are huge differences felt between different people uh, living in the uh, in the economy, You've got incredible differences between rich and poor. Starting with the idea that GDP isn't an adequate measure, you start to then question what should it be replaced with. It's, it's incredibly tricky to do so, given the way that the society has been built up over the past few decades, past half century or more, to focus on this on this number. Mm-hmm. As Annie says, looking at subjective elements of well-being, uh, you know, is being discussed as one of the one of the issues that we could take on uh, as a way to target people's uh, people's you know living standards in in, in society in. You know, 2013, the government actually introduced a uh, a well-being measure. It was one of the first advanced economies to do so. After David Cameron actually instructed the civil service to to look at this, the the usefulness of the measure though has has not really been proven so far. It's one of the additional statistics that the ONS publishes on a on a regular mm. basis. But mm. you know how how useful it is. It hasn't shown too much of a change since it was introduced in 2013. How you then uh, target spending decisions based on a metric that hasn't changed too much and might be quite subjective as well is is difficult to 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 come to um you know a conclusion on mm. annie you did some work for the ons on strengths and weaknesses of different measures of well-being and equality can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, so that was looking at subjective well-being. Um, and I do think that there's some really interesting stuff in there. So if we look at um, the different structural things that affect someone's well-being, some of it is obvious, like the importance of a job, but some of it is less obvious. So like the fact that people um, who have a bad job can often have worse well-being than people who have no job at all. Um, or the, like the massive impacts of commuting. Like, you know, you don't think of commuting as something like that's a big policy issue, right? Yeah. But actually people who have long commutes have drastically worse well-being. So I think there's some real interesting nuggets that we can find in, in subjective well-being research. I know there was something about autonomy in there too, right? Yeah, just the importance of like autonomy and security. Mm. Um, yeah, just that just can't be overstated. And again, when you're looking at income, it's less how much income you have. And a lot of it is about whether you know when your next pay packet is going to be and, yeah, and how much it's going to be. Yeah. Um, in terms of inequality, yeah. So um, the big average well-being score isn't like it does move very slowly, which is a problem for it in terms of policy making. But there's some fascinating stuff when you look at the inequalities in well-being. So one in five people in the UK uh, identifies having high levels of anxiety. Mm. Um, and that's, again, that's incredibly high given the like relative wealth that we live in. Mm. Um, so if to the extent that we do look at subjective well-being, I would definitely say that we need to be looking at inequalities as well as averages. 
Mm. There's some, so there's some, in terms of just, just broadening out beyond the UK for a second and like looking at other places that might be doing this differently, maybe better, there's some interesting work going on in New Zealand at the moment. As you both probably know, the coalition government has declared it will be the first Western country to design its entire budget based on well-being priorities, and it's going to tell government departments to design policies to improve well-being. What do you reckon? Have they, have they cracked it? I'm not sure if they've cracked it just yet. I mean, it, it, the the one danger of it, in my mind, is that it could be more of a publicity exercise by by the New Zealand government. Oh no, to sort of, I know. So I mean, hopeful. I don't I don't know if it entirely is nice. because it's at least really really useful to be having the conversation about tackling um, some really serious problems that they might have that you know could be solved through focusing the budget on well being issues. I mean, spending more on on uh, on mental health to boost the well being of a nation is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful for uh, an economy. For, for society to, to achieve. Um, my only fear with it would be that it is a, a useful packaging of um, the way that uh, you know, spending decisions are made. I would hope that they are moving away from solely looking at um, the, the GDP growth or the jobs growth um, of their economy. And it, it feels as though there is definitely progress being made towards doing that in the, in the New Zealand budget. But I just also can't help but be a little bit sceptical and fearful mm. that it might not go far enough. Mm, Annie, skeptical, fearful. Uh, I could have taken either role, but as as Richard's being <laughs> cynical, I'll try and be the optimist, Yay. which is to say that, like, like I do think that this is quite seminal. And mm. what's seminal for me about it is not that they've come up with a framework or that they've said that they're going to p- pursue well-being, but that at least in theory, it's embedded in the Treasury, and that's been one okay. of the issues over and over again. Is that you have well-being, everyone agrees it's nice. Who doesn't like well-being? Nobody. <laughs> so you put well-being, and it's like in a little department, um, sort of on the edges of government, and it's got a response responsibility for trying to you know get everybody else to take it seriously so at least in theory having it in the heart of economics which is exactly where well-being should be is really exciting i would completely agree on that i mean i I think here in the uk there's been a real problem with the treasury's focus on spending decisions cost benefits analysis we recently had um uh, lord gus o'donnell the former head of the uh, the civil service in the uk to three prime ministers in uh you know uh, he only stepped down a few years ago, but he was saying that the Treasury needs to, here in the UK, start focusing on well-being as an important measure of the spending decisions that Treasury takes. And if you have a former civil servant saying that the the targeting of GDP and growth and jobs is not adequate, uh, then you know something is perhaps wrong with the way that the Treasury is established here in the UK at the moment. I know there's a lot of talk about ways to reform that, but this is certainly you know a positive discussion to be having if we can improve um, you know the focus on well-being at our finance institutions. Mm. And has that has it ever happened here? I mean, there was a time back in the day when David Cameron was talking about happiness and measuring that. Is that the same? Like, yeah, has anything like this ever happened here? I mean, unfortunately, he also announced uh, decades of austerity (laughs) and the big society. So, Mm. yeah, I think actually that whole the the political history of it in the UK has done a lot of damage to the well-being agenda as it being presented as something that can gloss over a load of other difficult economic. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's all have a street party and then we don't need to worry about having like literally no money. Mm. Um, So uh, but in terms of where it's happened, again, I'll come back to Wales. So they've got a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, um, which does at least have some theory of kind of legal standing and they use that act to challenge decisions about the M4 extension so a massive motorway extension uh, that was going to potentially be harmful environmentally and in terms of human well-being Um, so that's an example where potentially these kinds of frameworks in the UK context did seem to have some impact. 
Mm. There's also um, the Social Value Act, which was introduced a few years ago into into statute in the UK, which means that public spending uh, needs to at least take consideration of the social value that it achieves. It doesn't entirely go far enough, really, because it can be ignored. It just needs to take consideration of what the social value is of spending decisions. But you know, it is perhaps some progress in the right direction. In that, you know, you need to have. Uh, local government, you need to have central government thinking about the impact that their spending decisions are going to have on society. I mean, quite often look at um, the so-called Preston model of, um, of spending in, in, uh, in Preston, where you know, they take account of whether they are offering contracts out to local services um, providers so that they can boost their local economies and grow them uh, for, the, for the benefit of the people that live in that area. And that really is the classic look at what the social value is of the spending decisions of the state. So mm. perhaps some movement in the right direction but it could be more annie is frowning <laughs> <laughs> no i was just realizing that um both of us are talking like quite kind of technocratically about exactly yeah. how decisions are made in the civil service mm. um and i guess i just wanted to come back to t- two things really firstly that this has to be hand in hand with massively democratizing the way that we do policy making so mm. we do not want to fall into the into the trap of thinking that we can just replace cost benefit analysis which is basically in theory how the civil service make decisions at the moment with some other kind of well-being analysis and then our job is done Mm. that's just not the case Mm. um you know it has to go hand in hand with like much more participatory forms of policy making but but the other thing is that like if if we really take well-being seriously and if we really take dethroning gdp seriously then the agenda is is massive we're talking about replacing neoliberalism with with a new set of um principles really so Mm. so if you think about gdp it's not just an aim for the economy effectively what it is it's a whole rationale for how we do economics so the idea is that you know there's a set of neoliberal principles about liberalizing the state increasing free trade and that that will grow gdp and that through trickle down economics will all be better off so if you take out the central plank of that neoliberal equation and put well-being there then we have to change the whole rest of the equation, right? We need to come up with a new set of principles. And that's why I think that just sort of adding in a a tweak to our policymaking system isn't right. We need to collectively, as a society, you know, say, okay, neoliberalism is crumbling. What are we aiming towards as a society and what are the principles that are going to get us there? Well, this is what I was going to ask is, is basically are a lot of the things that we're, you know, as you just said, it's not a quick fix. We can't just say overnight we're going to scrap GDP, bring in these other indicators and then everything will work differently. And I guess the question that I had was like, are some of these things that we're talking about inherently at odds with the, with the economic system that we currently live in, neoliberal capitalism, which, which needs like competition and individualism and all these things as kind of cultural phenomena to thrive? And like, obviously, we know that those are some of the things that have the most detrimental impact on mental health and well-being. But what happens when you, if and when you bring in these new indicators and we're we're looking at things differently, but we're operating in the same system, surely there will be a a clash? Potentially. I mean, I I think that though... You know, a reason to be hopeful is that we are at a moment in history where the 30 or so years of neoliberal economics that has held sway in the way that we uh, arrange our economies is finally feels as though it's coming to an end. I mean, there is yeah. just disappointment across the board in the way that, uh, you know, this type of approach has led us. Um, the the, the, the liberalisation of services, the, the, the privatisation of services that used to be fulfilled by the public sector has not increased our welfare. 
about. And, you know, no matter how much GDP may have risen over that period of time, there is an increasing feeling that the, the spoils of that growth are not being shared equally. And therefore, perhaps we need to look at a different way of structuring ourselves. And, and so focuses on well-being are inevitably being talked about more and more at this time when we have had a decade of austerity that has, has really ground people to the bone, that people mm. really want to, you know, find a different way of doing things and, and perhaps... Uh, taking away the the focus on GDP, looking again at people's well-being, which has seriously been undermined in the past few years, is is one of the the important ways of doing that. Mm. And of course, in the context of that breakdown of our existing system, we're also up against alternative ideas that come in to fill that space, right? Yeah, exactly. So we're not only fighting neoliberalism, we're also now looking at the spectre of eco-fascism and the far right mm. who have a very clear sense of like, or at least a very good articulating a kind of sense of where we're trying to go in terms of nationhood and a whole load of other things. Mm. And that's why I think this positive vision of where we're trying to go is so important and that well-being needs to be part of that. And is, I mean, is well-being it's still a useful word? I mean, you're a well-being expert, so you probably think it is. I'm just wondering, because I just feel like it's been so co-opted, you know, and like, especially by influencers and social media culture, and you've got that whole channel describing well-being as this thing that you can like buy with your matcha latte. And then you have other people kind of, you know, framing well-being as this, yeah, lefty, airy, fairy thing that is impossible to measure and out of our reach. Like, have we reached the limitation of that term? Do we need something else? I would try and reclaim it. I think people know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when, when we're doing so, quite a lot of our work um, is working with local communities around the country, thinking about how they can do whatever it is they're doing in a way that maximises well-being um, and thinking about how to measure well-being locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and people really, really get it. And it's, okay. it's amazing. I think sometimes I sit down with people at the beginning of a workshop and then by the end, they're like, that's exactly what I felt. And <laughs> I haven't, I didn't know I was allowed to explain that, you know, yeah. um, and say that that's what I'm aiming towards. So I think it can be a really empowering kind of um concepts to use okay let's reclaim it what do you think Richard? it's definitely worth reclaiming i mean i suppose it can have connotations of being let's go on a yoga retreat and we're going to have like you know matcha lattes and things as you say but at the same time you know well-being is an indication of whether you have political involvement in society whether you have um, economic involvement in society it's whether you have opportunity Uh, it's it's not just about having a a better state of mind like it's about having uh, inclusion in society um Mm. you know people might talk about inclusive growth or you know, inclusive economics oh, instead like of yeah. instead of well-being. But like the well-being is is really core to it, and it's definitely worth saving. Richard, if you could redesign this whole approach to growth from scratch, then based on everything that we've talked about, um, which measures would you choose, or how would you go about it? I think it's really difficult to pick on one individual metric. I think part of the problem uh, that we have is that we focus so much on GDP. I mean, we in the media are guilty of this uh, as much as anybody in that we report on GDP obsessively. um, And therefore, you know, my answer would really be to not focus on one metric. I mean, there are economists who talk about adding things into GDP so that it takes a better reflection of society. You know, Andy Haldane, as I mentioned earlier, the chief economist at the bank, talking about adding in the the, the value of the voluntary sector mm. into GDP, because as he would argue, what's not counted goes unnoticed. So GDP could be reformed to include some of those uh, elements that are missing. Um, it could include, um, you know, unpaid work in the home, potentially. You could take out drugs and prostitution, which is one of the things that's included mm. in the, uh, the valuation of GDP. But ultimately, I would say that we need to focus on a multitude of different measures, well-being being one of them, whether people's anxiety has been rising or falling, 
uh, whether people's wealth uh, has been uh, rising or falling and looking at that across the distribution. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, whether you're poor or rich, how your situation has changed over a period of time. I mean, that mm. is assessed at this moment in time by the Office for National Statistics. But you know, we could take more of a closer notice of, of how people's wealth and, and income as well, their wages have been, been changing over time. So, or not I, changing. Yeah, or not changing because they haven't for the past decade on yeah. average. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that GDP is entirely worth ditching. I wouldn't say that there is one silver bullet which fixes it all. I would say that you need to look across the board at a multitude of different measures. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. So let's go out on a hopeful note because it is the Week Economics podcast and apparently that's what we do these days. So, yeah, let's imagine that the government adopts all your recommendations. They kind of like throw out GDP or adapt to GDP or they come up with this new thing. and It's all about well-being and everything's great. What do you think would be the real world impact on people's lives if we started doing it in a different way? I mean, it's slightly circular because... I would hope that their well-being would improve. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. But I think no. it would genuinely, like, if we if we seriously dethoned, policy, uh, dethoned GDP, not just in our policy-making processes, but also, like, outside of that in, in business, whatever that looks like, and in our personal lives, I think it just opens up so many possibilities in terms of ways of living and also ways of living within environmental limits. I mean, we haven't talked about climate change at all, but like as we face like Mm -hmm. adaptation and the realities of climate change, all this chat about should we be aiming towards GDP? I mean, GDP just might be out of reach pretty soon, depending on, you know, how things unfold. Um, So I think, yeah, it, it opens up possibilities about how we're able to live a meaningful life within the resources that we have. Richard. Absolutely. I mean, growth uh, within our planetary confines may not be possible if we're going to be targeting uh, GDP uh, forevermore. I mean, we need to start considering seriously about whether, you know, flat GDP um, is, a, is a reasonable thing if it means that we're going to be having more sustainable economic growth or well, lack of growth mm. across the board in order to remain within the, the confines of the planet. But I guess in, in answer to your question, I think that it's very important to target uh, new metrics and to look at well being. However, ultimately, in order to improve people's living standards, there needs to be a a change in the amount of spending and investment in the British economy, which should help to improve people's living standards. You know, it's ultimately action which is going to improve people's well-being rather than measuring it at the the end Mm. of the day. So if the, you know, after a decade of austerity and cuts to government, uh, spending on public services, people's well-being has been damaged, and, and you know if we can measure that, that's that's a useful argument for stopping that. But ultimately, it just needs to be reversed at the end of the day to improve people's living standards. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I mean, I feel like all the podcasts recently they're just tying together so nicely. Last week we were talking with Keir and Shelley about generational divides and how essentially a big part of what we were talking about is neoliberalism is dead, but the zombie limps on, and we need to be you know f- creating these alternatives and ways of thinking to present at the funeral. Um, so it feels like that's kind of what we've done. We've had a jolly wake. <laughs> so thank you so much both for joining me. Thank you. Uh, thank that you. is all we've got time for this week. But Annie Quick, if people want to hear more from you, how can they do that? Uh, Annie Quick on Twitter. Okay, nice. Yeah. Short and sweet. Quick, even. Boom. I had to get it in. Oh, I love I'm it. So sorry. <laughs> uh, Richard Partington, same question. 
um, from The Guardian on a hopefully daily basis or I'm on Twitter as well, RJ Partington. Awesome. Thanks so much. Okay, that's it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, you know what to do. Please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter and we even read them. You can also find us on Spotify these days too, where apparently our listeners' top five artists are Ed Sheeran, Drake, Kanye West, The Beatles and Taylor Swift. So it really does take all types. That's that's just amazing. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week.